to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and this evening we're going to continue our study of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and this was written while Paul was a prisoner in the, in the city of Rome, and I think we've already seen in the first two lessons that we've talked about, these previous lessons, that this is a very profound book. Most Bible scholars agree that this is one of the premier books of the New Testament that has to do with with, uh, doctrinal teachings. These are foundational uh, areas of the Word of God that teach us God's plan and purpose for the world and also for this New Testament era. And one of the remarkable aspects of, of the book of Ephesians is that this was written to ordinary Christians. We're not talking about something that was written to a seminary graduates, and it wasn't Bible scholars. Paul wrote this to the average church member, and he fully expected that the people that he wrote to would understand what he meant. Now, when Paul wrote these things and he stated these doctrines that we're going to talk about tonight, that he spoke very matter-of-factly. He spoke without any equivocation. And it makes you wonder sometimes, what is all the fuss about? Why is it that people deny this doctrine? And why is it that they want to fight about it all the time when it's so clearly spoken? And what we need to do is simply take God at His Word. Why can't we just do that? Take the Bible exactly as it's written and and read it and believe it whether we understand it or not. Now, this evening, I I want to continue some of the thoughts that I began last week as we discuss being chosen by God. And, of course, this is the doctrine of election. Now, some people will say, I don't believe in election. Well, whether you believe in election or rightly or wrongly, the Bible definitely says that there is some kind of an election. And the problem is not, is there an election? The problem is, what is the election and to whom does this election refer? Well, we're going to let Paul speak for himself tonight. So let's read what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. So if you'll stand with me, please. And we'll read uh, beginning in verse number 3 down to verse number 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would speak very clearly to our hearts. Help us to understand what's written here. And Lord, just help us to accept whatever your word has to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the uh, first part of this sermon uh, on this particular topic, and I will preach another sermon on it next week, but also uh, in the coming weeks, uh, I'll have allusions to this and different areas that we need to discuss. But let's look at verse number four. It says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, the subject tonight is this word chosen. What does it mean to be chosen? And this word in the Greek is the word ekleg omehi, and actually what it means is to select. It means to choose out. It means to pick out. The great uh, Baptist Hebrew scholar A.T. Robertson said that this is a definitive statement of God's elective grace 
concerning believers in Christ. Now, the word according here at the beginning of the fourth verse ties it to the preceding section, and the emphasis here is on the person who does the choosing. And the person who does the choosing is identified as God the Father. So let's begin the lesson tonight by saying this, that election begins with the Father. And this whole first section of this first chapter of Ephesians talks about the work of the Trinity in salvation. The Godhead in all parts is very much involved in this. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, all parts of the Godhead are very intricately, inseparably, and indispensably involved in a person's salvation. They are there from the start to the finish, from the beginning to the end, from eternity past until eternity future. God is involved in the salvation of his people. And what cannot be missed in this particular scripture is that God is the one, God the Father is the one who has chosen. Now verse number three uh, tells us that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And the question then is, how is it that those blessings come to us? And why is it that some are partakers of the spiritual blessings of Christ? Why do some people enjoy the riches of God's grace? And why are there some people who do not. Now, immediately, there are some people who would say, well, we enjoy the blessings of God because we're saved. We enjoy them because we have believed, or we have received, or as they say, we have accepted Christ. And because of that, because of that basis, then we receive all of these spiritual blessings, and that's what makes us different from other people. Well, that's most certainly involved in this, and no one could deny it. But is that the reason that Paul gives in this scripture? How does Paul start out? Most people would also say that this is possible because of Christ, because of uh, God's work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is possible. All that Christ did in coming to the world to die for our sins, to go to the cross, to be resurrected from the grave, all of these things of what Christ has done, these are the reasons why we enjoy these spiritual blessings. And of course, that is involved also. But is that the way that Paul starts out? Well, in fact, it's not. He doesn't start out with me and the fact that I have believed. And he doesn't start out with Christ and the fact that Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. Paul doesn't start with either of those two options. Paul doesn't do either. Instead, he does something that uh, talks about something that does not occur in time. He speaks about something that happened before the world began, before time started. And he starts with what God the Father has done. Now, most people today, most Baptist people, are conditioned to believe, and others as well, that even though they have the Bible laid right out in front of them, they are still conditioned to believe that it all started out with my choice. It started out with my choice rather than God's choice. And if they're kind enough, they may say, well, no, it all started out with Christ, and we understand that. It started out with Calvary. But an honest student of God's Word would have to look at this Scripture, and he would have to say, without any mistake, that it all started before anyone was ever born, before it was even necessary for Christ to go to the cross. In fact, before even Adam came into the world, it all started in eternity past with the Father because that's what the verse says. So understand this very clearly, and you see this on your listening sheet tonight. We are chosen, or we were chosen in eternity past. 
Before the foundation of the world is what this says. And so that predates the work of Christ on Calvary. It predates uh, Adam's fall in the garden. It uh, most certainly predates uh, the time that you and I were born. This all happened in eternity and eternity past. And when we consider this doctrine of the the choosing of God, of election, then we must understand it's before time began. This is something that was in the mind of God before time actually began. And that cannot be denied from reading this scripture that we just read. Now, the reason why that anyone enjoys spiritual blessings in Christ and the reason why we have these heavenly places from which those spiritual blessings come is simply because God has chosen that to be so. And that's how Paul starts out. He starts out with the very best place to start. He starts in the beginning. He starts with the Father. And so if you want to know why out of all of the mass of humanity that rejects Jesus Christ, who fails to believe in the Lord, if you want to know why that you are one who believes out of all these people in the universe, then you just mark it down to this. It's because God has chosen you. And that was his choice to make. Now, the doctrine of election lays waste to a person's belief that salvation is his choice and not God's choice. It lays waste to a belief that God saw something that was in me, and that's the reason why he chose me, not on your life, because it was before the foundation of the world. Now, the second part of the Father's choice is why did God choose? Why did God choose you or me? Well, before I answer that question... Some have taught that God has chosen everyone to salvation. Not certain individuals, but God has chosen everyone to salvation. But let's think about that for a minute. Could that be true? I'm going to spend some more time on this later. But we'll notice here in verse number 4 that Paul says us. And then in verse number 6, he tells us what happens to us. The end of verse number 6 says, He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I don't want you to miss that word made. And don't miss this, what all elected people are elected to. What are they elected to? To be accepted in the beloved. So if God chose all people, then all people would be accepted in the beloved. Wouldn't that be true according to these verses? Well, what is that doctrine? If we believe that everyone has been elected and everyone and everyone has been accepted in the beloved, what is that doctrine? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's called universalism. And what it means is that everybody will be saved and nobody's going to go to hell. And consequently, since everybody's going to be saved, God had no need to even create a hell. And what does that lead to? Well, it leads to this. We don't need to preach. We don't need to come out here on Wednesday night. We don't need to stand up on Sunday morning and declare God's word. There's no need of that because there's no hell to be saved from. Everybody's going to go to heaven anyway. And that is the logical conclusion of believing that all people have been elected. So whatever else you say about this in this passage, it's very clear that the us in verse number 4 are the accepted in verse number 6. So let's answer the question, why were some elected? And the answer is in the end of verse number 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. God simply chose because God has the right to choose. And it's in accord with his glory and with his will. You wonder how people get so confused over something that's very clearly spoken? I, I, I do. I don't understand it. And what is the alternative if God has not chosen according to his will? 
Well, let me read to you what one commentator said. He said, the alternative explanation is that the apostle is saying that Christians, those who enjoy these blessings, were chosen by God before the foundation of the world because God, with his perfect foreknowledge, saw that they would exercise faith and thereby differentiate themselves from those who do not exercise faith. In other words, God chooses those of themselves who had already chosen to be Christians, those who have decided to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have sought salvation. There is no third possibility. Now, let me just break that down for you and simplify it a little bit. The other alternative is that God chose you because he saw that you would choose him. He looked down through time and he saw that you would make yourself different from the rest of the world by believing in Jesus Christ. And friends, do you know that that is the belief of many Baptists today? There are people who left this church because they believe that God chooses those who choose him first. But is that what Paul said? No, it's not what he says. He said it was according to the pleasure of God's will. It is not our will. And John says this in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now listen, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now that clearly tells us where this come from. comes from. It comes from God. It's not our will. It's God's will according to the good pleasure of God's will. And so you can slice it any way that you like. Cut it up into as many pieces as you want to cut it up to. And either you believe that God chose you or you chose God. There aren't any other options here. Either God chose you or you chose God. But friends, let me tell you this. If you chose God, the reason is because God chose you first. And there is no other reason why. God chose you first. And we learn that very clearly from reading these scriptures. Now let's go just a little bit further this evening. Let's point out secondly that election is scriptural. Now this is not something that I made up. Mark Smith did not make up this doctrine. And some people, I don't know, maybe you sit out there and you think, what is that crazy stuff that the pastor's preaching? I've never heard anything like that before. Well, you may not have heard of it before, but that doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. It's scriptural. And, and, just because, and you don't just find it in the writings of Paul. It's throughout the Word of God. Maybe you haven't heard about this before, and I'll touch on it a little bit later, but this is the prominent teaching of history and of Baptists historically. Now, let me first say about the scriptural aspect of it. Here's what we need to do. We must accept it even if we don't understand it. Now, do you notice something here? Paul puts forth no arguments. The Bible does not argue this doctrine. But what it does do, it reproves us and it reprimands us for not believing it. Is that so? Well, actually it does. The Apostle Paul was speaking on this very subject in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 9, he had already anticipated the objections of people who said, I don't believe in election. I don't believe that God chooses anybody. Chooses anybody, And so Paul already was ready for that objection. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Thou wilt say, unto thee, me, uh, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth yet he find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me, made me thus? 
So Paul is saying here, before you even think about objecting to God, don't assume that your tiny mind is capable of comprehending all that God does. It's impossible for you to do that. You see, you are a person who has willingly subjected yourself, and all people do this, all people have willingly subjected themselves to the deception of Satan. And so now Paul says, do you think that you're going to turn around and stick your finger in the face of God, the perfect creator, and say, I don't believe that. I can't believe that. He says, you can't do that. And Paul went even further uh, when he summed this whole thing up in chapters 8 through 11, speaking about the doctrine of election all the way through that, those passages of Scripture. And he comes down to Romans 11, verse 33, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Now, folks, this is an area of doctrine. If you don't understand it, just take it as God's word. Now, it should be obvious that this is not a doctrine that a person would formulate in his own mind. And you know why that's true? Because if, 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 uh, for every person who, who thinks about the choice of God, every choice that God makes removes a choice from our hands, doesn't it? Every choice that God makes for us is a choice that we don't make for ourselves. And that's why people don't like this doctrine. They want it in their hands. They don't want it in God's hands. So they're not content to say, no, God chose me before the foundation of the world. They can't believe it, so they can't believe that God did it. Well, Paul makes it very clear here, without any arguments, he states the fact. There are no arguments. And the thing to do is just believe what God says. And there is contention over this because people really don't want to take it exactly like it says in the Word of God. So is this doctrine scriptural? Well, let's look further. Secondly, there are many parallel statements in the Bible. Now, I alluded to this just a moment ago. Don't think that Paul is the only one who discusses this because this is a dominant theme throughout the Bible. In fact, the master teacher himself, Jesus Christ, taught this doctrine very clearly. Now, you need to look at the book of John, and we'll come to these statements that the Lord makes as we study the gospel of John. But you read especially chapter 6, 15, and 17, and read all of that, and you'll get a very good picture of what Jesus is talking about. But let me just give you a sampling here from the book of John. 1 John six thirty-seven says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty-nine, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. John fifteen sixteen. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. John seventeen two. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, and listen to this, that he should give eternal life to as many as... Thou hast given him. John 17, 9. Here's another one. I pray not for them. I pray not for the world. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. That's a powerful statement right there. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. John seventeen eleven. And now I am no more in the world, But these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 
Now, that's just briefly what Jesus said. But Paul gives us further parallel statements in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is clear. Notice that Paul says, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation. And in the last part of verse 14, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's take that scripture just a moment, and let's compare it to our text verses over in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse number 4. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now we look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13 again. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Ephesians 1.6, back in our text. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Back to 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Parallel statements. It sounds pretty much the same, doesn't it? Why have you been chosen and set apart? Not because you have believed the truth, but in order that you may believe the truth. And that's what election is all about. And this goes right back to the statement that Jesus made in John 10, 26. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Keep that word sheep in your mind for just a minute. The sheep are the elect of God, and they follow Christ because they have been chosen to do so. And so Jesus says to these Jews, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. And he does not say in this verse, you can become my sheep if you will believe. Now that's what some Baptists preach. Baptists right here in this area preach that. You can become a sheep if you believe. But that's not what Jesus said. And I'll take Jesus' word about this before I will anyone else. The sheep believe because they are already the sheep. They are the chosen of God. Now, maybe you don't understand that, but that's what Jesus said. What else do we have? What, what about what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 2? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. How do I know that election occurs before a person believes and not based upon God's foresight of what he would do? This verse tells me so. Now notice here that it says, Peter says that we are elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we were chosen to. And that is in perfect agreement with what Paul said. And this comes before what Christ has done, and it comes before our obedience in believing the gospel. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I read a pamphlet uh, written by a preacher, Nuvi, who said that the sanctification in this verse is the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says that this is speaking about the Holy Spirit who is being sanctified instead of us being sanctified. Well, all that you need to do is compare Scripture with Scripture. Compare 2 Thessalonians 2.13 to where Paul uses sanctification and 1 Peter 1.2 where Peter uses it and you find that the sanctification is exactly the same. They stem from the election of God and they bring the elect to the saving purposes of God. So you see, you can manipulate the scriptures. You can twist the scriptures around any way that you like and some will pull that kind of trickery to try to get around this doctrine. But you can't beat the clear teaching of scripture. 
Now, I could go on with more direct and indirect statements, but uh, the very fact that Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians that we were quickened, that we were made alive because we were dead in trespasses and sin, that shows us very clearly that God's actions on our heart cannot be based upon anything that he foresaw that we would do. And why is that true? Well, because dead is dead. Dead is not partially alive. Dead is not sick and hoping to get better. Dead is dead. And when you are spiritually dead, you don't have any spiritually alive actions. All spiritual activity ceases when you're spiritually dead. But when God quickens you, it can be for no other reason than this is a decision of God. Because you're dead. How are you going to make a decision? You're dead in trespasses and sin. And that's what Paul says. So it has to be God's decision. And it's God's choice. And you are brought to life for no other reason than this. And that is that you might believe. God quickens you to life in order that you might repent and believe the gospel. But then there are other indirect statements. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 34. You need to pay close attention to this one. Matthew 25, 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Prepared for you. And underline the word you. From the foundation of the world. Now you know what Jesus is talking about in that passage? He's talking about sheep and goats. He said the sheep are separated to be on the right hand. And the goats are over on the left hand. And Jesus says to the sheep, not to the goats. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus knew who the goats were. And Jesus knew who the sheep were before the foundation of the world. And he prepared a place for each of them. Isn't that what that verse says? It's exactly what Jesus said in John 10, 27. When he talked about sheep. My sheep. The elect of God. My sheep. Hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Now I want you to listen to this statement in Revelation 17, 8. Concerning the book of life. Revelation 17, 8 says. The beast that thou sawest was and is not. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now the beast here is the Antichrist. That's what, Paul, that's what uh, the writer uh, John is talking about in Revelation. He's talking about the Antichrist. And who does the Bible say will worship the Antichrist? Let me give you the answer. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, both of those scriptures tell us that there are names that are written. The names of the redeemed are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Those names had to be selected, didn't they? How do you write down a name without selecting it? How do you write down a name without knowing who that person is? Well, of course God knows who it is. And he recorded those names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And that matches perfectly what Paul said, what Peter said, and what Jesus said. Now, isn't it interesting here that John recorded Jesus' words in John 17, 2, when he talks about those that were given to him by the Father. And who did Jesus come into the world to redeem? He said it in John 17, those that were given to him by the Father. They were known before the foundation of the world, and their names were written down. That's what it says. 
Now, I told you before, I'm not crazy about this song. Uh, There's a new name written down in glory. There aren't any new names written down in glory because all the names have been there from the foundation of the world. Now, if that's not so, I would appreciate anybody who disagrees with these statements to come and bring your Bible and show me why that's not so. I've just read it from the Bible. I just believe it because that's what the Word of God says. So you see, there's plenty of evidence here for the election of God for those who would be saved before the foundation of the world. Now, we've only touched just the tip of the iceberg on this subject. Next week, I'm coming back to preach another message on it because it's important. There's more that we need to learn about this. But I want to point out uh, just one last thing tonight, uh, one last observation. And our third observation is election is a historical doctrine. Now, again, this is something that I alluded to earlier. I, I didn't invent this. I could not invent this. I didn't invent it, but it's been the position of, of, uh, of Christians all the way down through church history. And even though there are many in this area who don't believe it they re- and they reject it, yet all across this country there are plenty of people who do believe it and do accept it exactly as the Word of God says. And if you do a little bit exploring about this, you'll find that this is very widely received. Now, three observations concerning the historicity of this. First of all, it was the first position before apostasy. You know, a good rule of, of, uh, about doctrine is try to discover where it came from and who's been teaching it. Now, ultimately, of course, history does not decide the truth. The Bible decides the truth, and although something may be a very old doctrine, it can, in fact, be very old heresy. That's possible. But it's good to see, though, where a doctrine comes from. And in this case, I think you'll find it's very significant. If you were a Roman Catholic and you believed the, the, the line that the Roman Catholic Church gives, that they are the first church, then maybe this argument wouldn't mean much to you. If you believe that, then you'll have to skip this argument. But the position of churches prior to the teaching of conditional election, which is what most Baptist people are teaching today, prior to that was the teaching of unconditional election. And that's been, the, that's been the position down through history. It's all about the sovereignty of God, what I've been preaching to you tonight. Now, if you go back to Augustine, which is about 300 years after Christ, you'll find what I'm preaching tonight. And if you accept that Augustine was one of the first Catholics, and most people believe that he was, you would still have to admit that he was teaching what was the prevalent thought of his day. He was, he was preaching then what was still the opinion among most Christians. Later on, the teachings of a man by the name of Pelagius and one by the name of Arminius took over Roman Catholicism. And here's what you'll find today, that the basic beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church on the issue of sovereign election are exactly, almost identical to modern Baptist people. Almost identical to what they believe. Before the wholesale apostasy of Catholicism, they followed the teachings of Augustine, and that's a... That's a That's a matter of record. Just go to your history book and you can find that out. And then the Baptists, who existed contemporaneously with the Roman Catholic Church all the way back then, the Baptist people were teaching exactly what I'm teaching tonight. How do I know that? Go back to the earliest confessions of faith of the Waldenses. They were Baptist. And you'll find exactly what I'm preaching tonight. This is a historical position of the Baptist Church. Then secondly, it was taught by the Reformers. When Martin Luther came out of Catholicism, uh, if you know something about the history, the great argument was over justification by faith alone or justification by works. 
And Martin Luther came to the conclusion after studying the Bible that we are justified by our faith alone. There aren't any good works by which we are saved. And as a corollary to that, he also came to the conclusion that we are justified by faith, then it must be a God-given faith. It's not a faith that we have ourselves because we are depraved creatures. And so he came to the conclusion that the only way that a person could have faith is if God gave him that faith. It's, and it's God's choice then. If God gives people faith, then it must be God's choice who receives this faith. And thus you have the doctrine of election. That's what it's all about. John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, they all believed this. They believed in unconditional election. Now, one of the most interesting things about this is that these reformers, along with the Baptists who were extant at that time, the reformers and the Baptists wanted to have the Bible translated into the common language of the people. And you know the story, the Roman Catholic Church did not want people to have the Bible in their hands. And so the Reformers, along with the Baptists, decided we need to get the Bible into people's hands. And so they began to translate it. And so these Reformers translated Scripture, which eventually came to be the Scriptures that we have today, or the English versions of Scripture that we have today. So most interesting regarding this is that unconditional election, thirdly, was taught by the Puritans. It was taught by the Puritans. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646, the first London Baptist Confession of 1644, the second London Baptist Confession of 1689, all very strongly teach the doctrine of unconditional election. Then, those who were chosen by King James to translate the King James Version in 1611 were the precursors to the people who wrote those historic confessions of faith. Well, what does that mean? It means that the people who translated the King James Bible all believed without exception in the sovereignty of God and unconditional election. And that's the same doctrine I'm preaching tonight. Now, here's what I believe about the King James. I believe that the King James Bible is a preserved translation. That God very carefully guarded the translation of the King James Bible so that when it came down to us, we would have an accurate representation of God's holy word. So that we can trust this, that we know that this is God's word to us. Without any, any mistake, this is God's word to us. Well, the people who do not believe in election would then have to say, and the fundamental Baptists all, and they would have to say, your King James Bible was translated by heretics. That's what they say, because they don't believe the doctrines that I'm preaching tonight. So the King James Bible, they don't say this, but, because they won't admit to it, but this is the obvious conclusion. The King James Bible then was translated by heretics. Would you pick up a Bible and use it if it was translated by heretics? You know why I don't use the New World Translation, the Jehovah Witnesses? Because it's translated by heretics. And why I don't use a Mormon, Mormon whatever they do, it's all heretical. Uh, and the new versions that we have out today are translated by people who are homosexuals, who have, do not even believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't pick up one of those Bibles because the people who translate it are heretics. But that's exactly what these people who don't believe in what I've been preaching tonight would have to say about the King James. They would have to say, heretics translated that Bible because they believe what I'm preaching to you tonight. Doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't to me. I'm just, I don't know, I'm just a commoner, I don't know. <laughs> Fourthly, it was taught by all Baptists in development of our country. 
And I mean, folks, without exception. Every true Baptist church in America today has to trace its roots back to the men who founded the original Baptist churches in America. And the overwhelming relied upon confession of faith when the first Baptist churches in America got started through history here is the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. And that is identical to the second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 that I spoke a moment ago. Very, very clear the position on what I'm preaching tonight. And so what those men did when they started churches in America, they took their King James Bibles and they preached the very same thing that I've been preaching to you tonight. Now, not only that, but through the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, all Baptist churches, nearly all Baptist churches in America were preaching this very same doctrine. And along with them, the greatest preachers and the greatest theologians in America were teaching this. The greatest theologian believed by most that America ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards so very clearly preached exactly what I'm preaching tonight. And he preached it during the First Great Awakening. And there were thousands, this whole country was revived. Thousands of people got saved under this preaching. The father of modern missions, William Carey, preached this. Adoniram Judson preached this. Luther Rice preached it. Hudson Taylor preached it. The great Baptist preachers of the South, James Pettigrew Boyce, Basil Manley Sr. and Jr., John Dagg, Isaac Backus, John Broadus, J.R. Graves, J.M. Pendleton, A.C. Dayton, all of them preached the very same doctrine that I'm preaching to you tonight. Any person of any stature in America who was preaching preached exactly what I'm preaching tonight. Then you go to, across uh, to England. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was preaching this. Alexander McLaren in Scotland was preaching this. The greatest Baptist preachers who have ever lived preached this. Now, they believed it. They preached it. So why is it that there are Baptist preachers today who don't preach it? Let me give you the reason. Number five, it has been rejected since the rise of modernism. Now, you'll hear fundamentalist Baptists today decry, fun, uh, decry modernism. They hate modernism. But did you know that fundamentalism and modernism have their roots in the very same place? You go back to the end of the 19th century, and there was what was called the, the, the higher textual criticism. And this is when people began to doubt the inerrancy of Scripture. And they began to teach that the Bible was really not God's holy word. And so they rejected the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. So liberalism began to prevail. And modernism began to reject the doctrines that I'm preaching tonight. They began to reject the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because those things go hand in hand. When, as, soon as, you, as soon as you kick off sovereignty of God, then you might as well figure close behind it on its heels is going to be the inerrancy of Scripture. Because you can't believe the scriptures any longer. So modernism arose. And so they rejected the sovereignty of God. The preaching of John Wesley in the 18th century began to be more prevalent throughout the 19th century. And by the time you get to the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, those Baptists at that time began to preach the modernistic ways. And so the Baptists of today have finally come down to the point where Baptists believe more like the method John Wesley than they do like the Baptist Charles Spurgeon. They've completely switched on this issue. So fundamentalism grew out of a response to modernism. And when the fundamentalists did that, they, they said, no, the Bible is inspired. The Bible is the inerrant scripture. And well, they should have said that because that's true. 
So they stood strongly on that. But what they didn't do, they didn't reject the other modernist teachings that had come in. And that was on the sovereignty of God and the, and the things that I'm teaching tonight. So they departed from what Baptists were teaching and they actually became modernists themselves. And so your average Baptist preacher today believes exactly like the modernist of the 19th and the 20th centuries. Comes from the same place. Now, what's the result of this? Well, Baptist churches are fundamental, but they aren't historical. They don't have the same doctrines that the Baptists and the Apostles and all the way back preached. This is why I do not like to be called a fundamentalist. I believe all the fundamentals of the faith. There's no question about that. But I do not want to be identified with Baptists who rejected our Baptist heritage and what the Apostles were teaching in the New Testament. That's why I don't like being called a fundamentalist. Now, I believe all the fundamentals of the faith. So write this down. Instead of calling us fundamental, call us historical Baptist. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in the fundamentals because we do. It means that we believe in all of the fundamentals plus believing what Baptists taught during the previous 20 centuries. So that's why I believe what I believe, just a part of it. Next week, I'm going to come back to this, and we're going to talk about the benefits of this doctrine. Why should we be teaching this, and what is it doing for us? And that's all my time for tonight, right at 8 o'clock on the dot. And so, um, if you have questions about this, you might want to listen to it again, or come and ask me, because I'm willing to explain anything that I've spoken tonight. And I've, I've given you plenty of Scripture. Go home, read them, think about them, and see if what I'm saying is not exactly what the Word of God says. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to expound your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that are taught in your word. And I just pray, Lord, you might open people's hearts to a doctrine that lays everything at the feet of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is all in God and nothing in us. There's nothing for us to boast about. We can't boast because, God, you planned it from the foundation of the world. You carried it forth and you will consummate it in the end ages. So, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts tonight with the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray.